We read from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 31 to 42. Since it was the day of preparation, the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, especially because that Sabbath was a day of great solemnity. So they asked Pilate to have the legs of the crucified men broken and the bodies removed. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true and he knows that he tells the truth. These things occurred so that the scripture might be fulfilled. None of his bones shall be broken. And again, another passage of scripture says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of his fear of the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. Nicodemus, who had at first come to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about a hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices in linen cloths, according to the burial custom of the Jews. Now there was a garden in the place where he was crucified. And in the garden, there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Thanks be to God. Bodies are sometimes at least something of an inconvenience, both in life and in death. In life, they are at their best wonderful. The problem is that keeping them at their best requires quite a lot of hard work and quite a lot of luck. Either neglect or illness can suddenly rob us of that which we've taken for granted. And the experiences of the last two years of the pandemic has brought home to us just how frail our bodies can be at times. We can exercise, eat healthily and have all our jabs but I'm afraid there are no guarantees that our bodies won't let us down, cause us pain, or just go and plain die on us. And in death, bodies are even more inconvenient, certainly to those who are left behind to deal with them. In our society, we have a whole system in place to deal with dead bodies, usually involving so-called private ambulances, chapels of rest and cemeteries or crematoria. Because we know 
that a dead body left to its own for a few days will start to spread death and disease to those who are still healthy. Dead bodies can also tell a story, of course. Any sudden death must be investigated for evidence of foul play, as every episode of every TV detective drama ever has demonstrated. But also, as we are now hearing from Ukraine, they can provide evidence of war crimes. Forgive my rather depressing, earthy, bodily introduction, but we are, after all, at Good Friday. And our reading for today tells the story of the disposal of the body of Jesus after his crucifixion. The ancient Roman practice was to leave the bodies of crucifixion victims on the cross to be gradually decayed and eaten by carrion. But the Jewish practice was to bury before sundown and give them the dignity of a ritual burial. This is why the legs of the two criminals crucified alongside Jesus are broken to hasten their deaths and allow burial. Jesus, however, is already dead, but that doesn't save his body from the barbaric act of being speared by a soldier. And up until this point in the story of that first terrible Good Friday, everything has seemed relatively normal. People are executed, people die, people are buried. But the spear in the side of Jesus, surely intended as a final indignity to mark the end of his life, has an unexpected outcome. Blood and water flow from the side of Jesus. Too much speculation has gone into finding a medical cause for this. And I think that to do so is to rather miss the point of the ever symbolic fourth gospel. None of what's about to happen can be explained medically. So let's not worry about this detail either. Rather, we already know from John's gospel that both blood and water have symbolic meaning as indicators of new life. Earlier, Jesus has spoken about the importance of eating his body and drinking his blood to receive eternal life. And also, he has spoken of the gift of living water as a gift of life to all who receive it. Blood and water within the metaphorical world of the fourth gospel are both symbols of life. The blood and water that flow from the wound in the side of the dead body of Jesus are, if we are paying attention, the first indications that something unusual is going on in this otherwise quite unremarkable execution. Even at the moment of Jesus' death, the signs of new life are already starting to show. The light of the world is glimmering through the cracks in the shroud of death. There is a direct link here in John's symbology to the Christian rituals of communion and baptism. In communion, we receive the bread and wine as symbols of Jesus' death. And yet we also proclaim them to be a sign of God's undertaking for the life of the world. 
And in baptism, the person being baptised goes down into the grounds like a body being laid in the grave before rising to new life in Christ, symbolically washed clean of the power of sin over their life. These rituals of blood and water are life-giving because the one who gave his life on the cross continues to give life to us. Look at the symbolism of our building. Cross, communion table, baptismal pool. We have built Good Friday into our architecture. But for now, in the story of that first Good Friday, the clue of the blood and water is overlooked by the characters in the story. Instead, the people around the cross busy themselves with the horrifically mundane task of dealing with the body of their dead friend. Two of his lesser known disciples step to the fore at this moment, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And they take his body, they anoint it with expensive perfume, and they lay it in a newly cut tomb. We've met Nicodemus before in John's Gospel, if you remember. And to make sure we don't overlook him, we're specifically reminded by the author that he was the disciple who had first come to Jesus at night. He was, as we know from earlier in the Gospel, a Pharisee. A leader of the Jews, we're told, in chapter 3, verse 1, who had come to Jesus in secret and discussed with Jesus what it meant to be born again from above. Nicodemus didn't realise it back then in chapter 3, but Jesus' language of being born again was another of the Gospel's clues that death does not get the final word on life. Life keeps erupting into situations of death. And here on the day of crucifixion, we meet Nicodemus again, coming out of the shadows to minister to Jesus at the moment of his death, bringing with him all the expectations of new life that are carried in Jesus' words to him back in chapter 3, the promise that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. And Joseph of Arimathea is present here too, another seldom mentioned disciple who appears in each gospel only once always doing the same thing. He asks Pilate for the body of Jesus and lays it in a freshly cut tomb. The other Gospels give us a bit more information about him, but here in John, he is a secret disciple, a hidden follower in fear of the Jewish authorities. Unlike Nicodemus, who encountered Jesus at night and then stepped into the light, Joseph continues to walk his discipleship path along hidden pathways. But there's something interesting about Joseph of Arimathea. He might be a bit part character in the Gospels, but within the Christian tradition, he emerges as a person of great significance. 
He's present in almost every classical depiction of the burial of Jesus, whether painting or sculpture. He gives his name to a group known as the Nicodemites, who hid their faith to avoid persecution at the, at the Reformation. And somewhat astonishingly, he becomes an integral part of the founding mythology of England. He's there in the stories of King Arthur and the Holy Grail. Would you believe it? He even becomes Jesus's uncle, taking the young Jesus to visit Glastonbury. And he features in William Blake's subversive poetry and is in the background to the opening premise of the great hymn, Jerusalem. And did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountains green? Well, if they did, it's because Joseph brought them over. Goodness, what an afterlife this man has had. So much so that my good friend John Lyons wrote a whole book about him. So what are we to make of Joseph and Nicodemus taking Jesus's body and burying it in a tomb? Well, I think they invite us to see ourselves in this narrative. None of us really knows what to do in the face of death. It is, after all, the ultimate mystery. Some of us avoid it. Some of us deny it. Some of us pluck up the courage and face it. Some of us are confronted with it against our will. And I think the actions of Nicodemus and Joseph on that first Good Friday invite us to reflect today before the cross of Christ on our own reactions to the distressing reality that is death. But as we do so, we should not lose hope because John's gospel is at pains even on Good Friday to offer its readers that glimmer of hope, the blood and the water, the promise of life, the hope that death is not in the end, in fact, the end. Let us pray. God of the cross, we gather today with the great multitude of disciples across time and space to look up into the face of our crucified Messiah. Today is the day we confront death in all its stark reality, recognizing where you have already gone, that we too will one day follow. Jesus, remember us when you come into your kingdom. We remember all those who today face the reality of death. We commit to your loving care those who are nearing the end of their lives through age, illness and infirmity. And we particularly think of those known to us who are drawing near to the end. Be with them, we pray. And may they know the comfort of your eternal love which transcends death. Jesus, remember us when you come into your kingdom. We remember all those who live in constant fear for their lives. 
for those whose daily routines include bombs and guns, intimidation and terror. We pray for those for whom life is cheap and for those for whom the cost of survival is too high. Be with those for whom life is uncertain and be present to those who do not know if they can carry on. May they know the comfort of your eternal love which transcends death. We give thanks for those who bring healing and peace to a world of darkness and for those who offer hope to the hopeless. Jesus, remember us when you come into your kingdom. We remember those who mourn, who live daily with the pain of loss. We pray for those whose loved ones are dying, for those who care for partners with terminal illness, and for those living with dementia. May they find comfort in the security of your eternal love which transcends death. God of the cross, we offer you our prayers in the certain knowledge of your great love. Amen. May the blessing of God the Almighty, God the Crucified and God the Eternal be with us and sustain us on this day of darkness and death. Amen.